Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Hi, this is Hugh Ballou and Russell Dennis again for this edition of the Nonprofit Exchange. We have interviews with thought leaders every week and Russell, um, this is somebody you found today. How are you today, Russell? Greetings, salutations from sunny Aurora, Colorado, not far from Boulder, where our guest is today. My friend, Michelle Fisher, who runs a nonprofit that supports people through equine therapy. She's unique in that she raises money for herself and she funds other projects. So we're going to find out a lot about her secrets and how she's able to juggle both hats and wear both hats and what she looks for. And to talk about how equine therapy is helping veterans and children all over the front range of Colorado. Love it. Love it. So let's, um, let's just jump into this. Michelle Fisher, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange and tell people a little bit about yourself. Thank you, you and thank you so much Russ thanks both for having me today um, I am a graduate of the University of Michigan and my degree is in early childhood development I'm a teacher and have been a teacher and lover of education um, from the get-go I decided at a very early age that I wanted to try to help children in a different way not not just through traditional education means by being a teacher um, I became a CASA worker, C-A-S-A, -S -A, it's an acronym for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And we are um, volunteers that are trained to work with foster children who are, have been abused and or neglected, and we help them in life. We actually become life coaches and advocates in court and in their family life for them. So this showed me how there were many, many more opportunities to help not only one child at a time or one classroom at a time, but entire families and entire communities that were compromised or otherwise had survived um, some sort of trauma. Um, I, when I lived in Lake Tahoe, I became certified in what was then called the NARA program, the North American um, Handicap Riders Association. Today it's called PATH, P-A-T-H. And it's a particular version or modality of equine therapy that primarily um, addresses the needs of humans on the autism spectrum and also people who have cerebral palsy. Um, so as I married my two new loves, my equine therapy and my CASA work and education work with children, um, I realized that if there was enough money available for veterans that have PTSD and children who have been traumatized, we would be able to have a permanent impact, to make a permanent impact upon the mental health in our society. Um, as I became more and more involved in the mental health arena through my CASA work and also through the equine therapy work, I was struck and dumbfounded by how remarkably effective working with the horses was with people who were frankly quite emotionally ravaged and even physically ravaged in their lives. 
And so this um, became a, a, almost an obsession with me to find out why this connection is so different from other forms of traditional modalities and therapies when we are um, trying to help victims of um, trauma of all sorts try to live normal lives. I say normal. I know there's really nothing normal, but trying to live joy-filled lives, trying to live lives of fulfillment and um, with absence of emotional and mental pain. So... Um, I started to volunteer as a horse handler at various equine therapy barns around my area in Boulder, Longmont, Lafayette, Louisville, Colorado. And I learned that there is an entire tribe of incredibly skilled, passionate, knowledgeable people who are doing this work, not only here in Colorado, which happens to be a hotbed of equine therapy, I've, I've learned, um, but also all over the country and um, in Eastern Europe as well. Um, and so I, I started the Healing Hoof in order to raise money for people who couldn't afford equine therapy to be able to get the benefit of it. And in that, I've also um, learned how to sort of find the vibe of my tribe which I think is a really important learning for executive directors and other individuals involved in nonprofit work. Whether you are giving, uh, awarding grants, um, receiving grants, or doing some mix of both, or whether you're not even involved in the grant world. Maybe you're just, uh, not just, I'm not demeaning it, maybe you're uh, accepting donor uh, in the, uh, uh, donations or sponsorships. No matter what means you are using to generate energy and create um, a, a new life for your nonprofit. I think it's incredibly important to make sure that you find the right people. That's what I mean by find the vibe of your tribe. So I'll tell you a short story, um, an anecdote. I was a um, director of business development for a nonprofit in Lakewood for a while before I um, immersed myself fully into my own nonprofit. And during that time, um, one of the very, very large um, mega oil producers in Weld County approached us and asked if they could partner with us in order to gain positive PR. Their philosophy was that because um, many folks in Colorado are opposed to fracking and they work here and, and they have to work with us, um, gee, did I just say something about my political opinions? Um, the, the, they have a hard time really getting community buy-in to what they're doing. And so what they came to us for was to spend a lot of money in several communities on the I-25 corridor in the heart of Weld County, where um, the bulk of their operations exist, to build things like um, rec centers or community um, uh, places where the community could come and they would name it after themselves so that the community could see them as a more friendly player. And at that company, we thought that was a great idea, and they were willing to pay us a great amount of money to do it. 
And so fast forward to now marketing this nonprofit, and I'm speaking to all thought leaders in the nonprofit sector. Um, as a marketer and a business development person, my mind went to, wow, how many veterans and kids could I help with their checkbook? So maybe I should approach them to become a sponsor, right? And so I did my research and I looked at the websites and I dug deeper and deeper into their um, physical plans and all of the information that I could garner from each of maybe seven or eight of the larger to mid-size um, operators. And what I found was that they are not my tribe. And um, the reason they're not my tribe is because of who they really are intrinsically and the way that they choose to present themselves to the community. Their desire, and I'm not saying that this is true for all of the operators, I'm just saying that this large one and the large ones that I did research on, what I found was deception. And what I found was that they promised to show certain things or um, reveal certain things that they really didn't. And so even though I probably could have gone down that path and gotten um, significant sponsorship dollars for my foundation, I decided not to. Because in the end, the only real people that will, the only real support that we will get for our individual passions and for our work that we're doing is from the people that are authentically attached to it passionately and in their hearts and souls, not just as a job each day. And um, I tell that story because I think that as business people and as responsible executive directors and directors and, and um, volunteers and all different kinds of people that um, work to make this world better on many different planes, um, sometimes we get lost in trying to raise money and making that the goal because it is it's, it's paramount to our, not just our success, but to our survival. So, of course, we, we must keep our eye on that ball. But I ask for us today to open some space to consider being a little bit more selective and taking um, a long-term view in, in um, exchange for a shorter term relationship that may end up working out for the short run, um, may get you some bad press or not. But in the end, if it's not really part of your vision and your mission and your heart, um, then I don't believe it's worth pursuing, even if it glitters a lot. It, so, it's so how long have you been doing um the Healing Hoops Foundation? We, we started in 2013, and we have really just begun to be, uh, become vibrant and active. Um, I was doing, a, life got in the way a little bit with me um, between then and now in order um, for, to, it prevented me from really going um, full force um, into this, and now I am able to do that. And so we're having our first event this summer, August 11th in Longmont, 
we're going to have a um, a really fun event with a very well known um, a cappella rock band called Face vocal band who's going to be our headlining entertainment there and so we're really looking to uh, make a splash into the um, Denver market with lots of great grant funding and lots of opportunity for um, veterans and kids and um, people who need to um, address issues re uh, relative to, to the um, to their trauma. So Russell You've been carefully paying attention. I'm sure you have some questions for Michelle. It is, and yeah, I, you know, we met fairly recently, and uh, we've been working together to move uh, move things forward. And uh, the the ability to build relationships that help you raise money and and fund projects takes a bit of juggling. So, what I wanted to ask Michelle is. What are three things you look for in collaborative partners, whether you're getting them to write you a check or whether you're writing them a check? Mm -hmm. The first thing I look for is authenticity. Are they really who they purport to be? Are they really doing the work that they say they're doing? Are they passionate? Are they involved? Are they engaged? Um, and that's the most important thing is um, their dedication from inside to the work that they're doing. And then I look for their wherewithal. Are they emotionally balanced? Are they able to carry forward this work? Are they able to do the work that they set out to do and uh, uh, accomplish their goals? Um, and, you know, are they well-balanced and able to be a leader. Um, and then the third thing would be, who, for whom are they the sphere of influence? So when I start to gather my tribe of those that I want to help and those that I would like to help me help them, um, I want to make sure that we have the same spirit of moving money. Um, I'm dedicated to moving the money that I receive so that it can work. And whereas um, I appreciate people who make a lot of money and have a lot of um, resources, if they're not willing to move these resources and allow them to become part of the commerce of healing and making our world better, then they're not a good partner for me. Yeah. And they need to smile. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't smile very much. Not you know, much. It's just disturbing <laughs> that you have teeth today. Because, uh, you know, and so with that said, that looking for these things in in the collaborative partners, there are things that you do that make you successful. And what would you say are the three key ingredients to your success, both before and after you started this project and this journey? Number one, I'm willing to say no. And, I, and that's a difficult thing, especially for those of us in this world who inherently have large hearts and say yes too often at the, at, around the table and then cry on the way home trying to figure out how we're going to fulfill that promise. But, um, I think the ability to draw boundaries when it's appropriate, to say no to the opportunities that are not good for everyone and to recognize what is really a win-win-win for all of the people and, and animals involved. Um, for example, one of our strong tenements is to fund barns and equine therapists 
who take excellent care of their horses, who don't overuse the land, who try to use organic products and not a lot of chemicals. So it's not just the mental health of the child or the adult that we're, that we're concerned about. We want to make sure that our horses are happy and healthy. They're co-therapists. They're very, very important to us. And they're sentient be beings that we respect a great deal. And um, so that's, that's part of what's very important to us too. And that does set us apart. There are some people that will do sort of equine therapy, just come and pet my horse or, you know, get on the horse and ride. There's a certain kind of, if you want to call it therapy or equine experience associated with that, but we're, we're pretty picky about who we fund. We fund therapists that are licensed and that have experience. Mm -hmm. And um, depending on what you come to us with, what your maladies are, whether or not they're physical, emotional, mental, or some combination, will depend upon which barns we might recommend for you or what type of equine therapy um, we may suggest might be the most impactful for your particular um, issues that you're dealing with or way of life or concerns or experiences. I mean, everything's really individual. You know, that's really one of the hallmarks of effective collaboration. When people come to you, having that network of people and uh, being willing to, to share the wealth, so to speak. It's a, okay, I know people that do certain types of therapy for certain types of children better, and I'll send, it, send you to them. Mm -hmm. And we're all about both strategy and collaboration here at Cinevision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that Beth Cantor, who is a, an expert at nonprofit social media, she wrote a book called The Healthy, Happy Nonprofit, and she talks about, the importance of taking care of yourself, which you, you emphasized here. Uh, how important is it for nonprofit leaders to take care of themselves in order to be effective at, uh, at actually serving others? And, and what, what would you say are the three most important things that a nonprofit leader could do to take care of herself or himself so that they are effective at helping other, uh, helping other people? Well, Russ, it's not only important, it's critical because one cannot be effective if they are not well cared for. And there's a reason that the, that the um, stewards and stewardesses, the flight attendants, tell us to put the oxygen on ourselves first because if we are not fully present and we are not, our cup isn't full, then we are not able to give to others fully, authentically, and to give them everything that they truly need. So I believe in two-hour massages, number one, not one-hour massages. <laughs> After one hour, I'm just kind of getting relaxed and the jello's just setting. Two-hour massages. I mean, yes, it costs a little bit more money, but it will, it will go a lot further. So massages, happiness, to do what really brings you joy, whether it's dancing or singing or drinking a cup of coffee at six o'clock in the morning and watching the sunset or climbing upon one of my horses at midnight when you can't sleep and just doing a little bit of breathing or yoga or whether it's taking a walk or a bath or having a good argument or discussion or reading a book or knitting. I mean, what or sports, whatever it is, find out like my good friend Cody Qualls from Face Vocal Band and says, what's your jam? <laughs> your jam on, your jam. 
can. I think that's a really important thing to know about ourselves and to give ourselves permission to indulge in. Um, if you have children, um, if you are involved in your work or extracurricular activities or taking care of parents, we all need to fill ourselves up. And um, there are some, some schools of thought that will have us believe that that's a selfish act or that it is un, un, um, not giving to take care of yourself first. And we all have to negotiate that particular conversation and value, um, you know, amongst ourselves and the people that we engage with. But I, there is nothing wrong with meeting your own needs, eating great, healthy food. I've met people who say to me, I can't afford to eat organic, and they have the latest version of the newest iPhone. So it depends on what you value. And if you value your longevity, if you value what you have to give, um, I think that you will be able to give it for a long time and to give much, much more quality um, in terms of, of your knowledge, your wisdom, your offering, your service, or your products if you take care of yourself. So that's one thing. Get massages. Engage with people. Find your own personal tribe. Laugh with people. Cry with people. Engage. And for me, and this might not be for everyone, engage with animals. Um, that to me is a, very, is a big part of um, my own personal well-being. And I know it's not for everybody, but if, if you're a meow or a bark or a neigh, go, go do your nay-nay. <laughs> Find your nay-nay. It might not be a horse. Well, I can't be a service to others unless I'm at my best. And, and uh, yeah. so you are, you are by trade a teacher from the University of Michigan. And yeah. as, a, as, a, as a lifelong fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, I never thought in a thousand years I would meet a Michigan Wolverine that I like as much as I like you. I mean, we've just connected and clicked on so many levels. But, you know, you started your career. You've been working very closely for a long time with children, and you chose to serve children, you know, and as a court-appointed special advocate in three counties, you were still serving children at a high level. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the therapy work that you've done with children and why horses yes. are perfect for, for helping children through the, any challenges they have. So children, why children? Because children are our future. Children are our hope. Children represent the continuity of our very being and species. And they are so magically delightful that um, when they honor me by allowing me to pick them up or care for them or laugh with them, it just touches my heart very, very deeply. Um, I find them to be so varied and so open and they teach me so much. I learn so much from kids that adults are just kind of a little bit jaded or dead to sometimes. So it keeps me alive. It keeps me willing to be a little different and to think of things in a little different way. And it also allows me 
um, to see the world literally from a different point of view. When you look at the, the view from a three-year-old and you're looking at mostly table legs or, or, or humans' knees, it's a very different way of looking at the world. And it, it gives me compassion for um, needing to work harder to look into people's eyes and to be able to meet them you know, on a, on a deep level. And children allow me to do that and foster that for me. And um, so I think they bring life and um, honesty and joyfulness to most situations. So that to me is what draws me to children. Um, and it makes me feel so great when I still am in touch with an 18-year-old child that I got as a CASA child when she was 18 months old um, out of a horrific situation. And today she's a pediatrician. So, you know, it's, it, you know, it's children, that, that sense of possibility is remarkable among children and they're, they're small. But talk a little bit about how being a court-appointed special advocate uh, played into you starting the Healing Hope Foundation because what we're talking about with PTSD is trauma. It's trauma at the highest level. That's exactly uh, yeah. So um, when I first became a CASA member. Um, a lot of people would respond to the news by saying, oh my God, how could you do that work? I could never do that work. I love children so much and I'm so sensitive to them. And I'm here to tell you that I can do the work because I love children so much. It hurts me to see what people do to children. Every single time it breaks my heart. I mean, even after 18 years, well, I get, no, she's not, in, she's not a pediatrician yet. She's in school. After, it's only 18 years. After 18 years, um, I still cry. I still feel very, very deeply, but never in court, never in front of them. And I, it gives me power. It empowers me because if a child can stand up and put one foot in front of the other, after what they've experienced with so little resource and so little support, then who am I, this, you know, privileged white woman <laughs> to say that I can't go out and raise money and help people and do what I know I can do. And um, I find that strength in those cases, I find my wherewithal. I find that I can take on a tougher um, family. I can take on um, a group, a, a gang member. Um, I can work with these people. I'm not afraid anymore. And what they have taught me is how to grit my teeth and get what I want. And it was a message that my father taught me that they are reinforcing that has been very, very valuable. That um, even when it looks like there's nothing, you know, I don't know if you know who David Peltzer is, A Boy Named It was the book that he wrote, but he was a spokesperson person for CASA, as is Dr. Phil and his wife Robin, spokespeople for CASA. But what they, what they show us is how the human spirit knows no bounds and that if we will just reach out a little bit and give just a finger up, a hand up, an arm up, whatever we can afford to, to, to spread around, that what blooms is so much greater 
than the small seed that we that we once planted. Now many of these children are leading productive, contributory lives in society. And um, I, I, I'm not going to say, and I, it would not be deserving for me to say just because of me, of course, but I did play a role in their self-confidence, in bringing them hope that there is someone, there is an adult who will listen and in learning um, to use resources. So that keeps my engine going, knowing, and there are plenty more children and people that are suffering that I can help through using my, my education, my experience, my mind, my, my resources, and my wherewithal to bring awareness to their, to their um, you know, to what they need. There are people that will help. We just have to ask the right people. <laughs> and it's work, this work has taken place with small children, with developmental delays. It's taken place with teenagers. Oh, yeah. Some have been in gangs, but they've experienced all of this trauma, city kids, you know, and connectedness is really important as far as reaching children. I'm sure a lot of our nonprofit leaders that watch here work with youth and children. And, but equine therapy is a, is a unique sort of out of the box, fairly new way of approaching working yes. with these kids. And so, horses are very large animals. Yeah, most just of them. the sight of a horse you know, if for even for an adult, you, you look up and you see this huge animal. They've experienced all of this trauma and there's probably some fear going on around that. So how do you how do you ease the children and the and these young people that you're working with? Same thing could be going on for veterans too that you work with. When when people have experienced this trauma, there's a fear factor going on. How do you how do you bridge that and 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 let these folks know, hey, you're safe here, yeah. so that they can ease into actually building a relationship with the animal? Great question. Um, I use the principles of an author by the name of Gavin De Becker, and he's one of the um, he protects one of the presidents. I don't know if it's the current president or Obama, but he's also an author, and he wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. Um, and it's a, the, the, the principle is that fear is useful and that fear exists in us for a reason and is, it is to be paid attention to, not to be overridden, ignored, or otherwise bulldozed through. So your question is so wonderful. Why horses and how do we mitigate fear? Horses help us to mitigate fear. They not only, um, by virtue of their size and maybe other people's experiences or what people have heard about horses, they not only induce fear, but they also um, help us to bring our fears out and put them on the table. So for example, um, no matter who the herd of horses that I pick, if I bring a client that has a boundaries problem, one of those horses is going to get up into her face and make that client deal with her boundaries. And they know, they just know what you're feeling inside. So why fear? We use the fear as a therapeutic forum to become aware of 
to understand that these are feelings, to name what that really is that you're feeling and to be able to talk about it and why. Where else in your life do you feel fear? How is this like other fearful situations? How is it different? And there's a plethora of conversations that then ensue because we use trained therapists who not only take advantage of these situations, but they foster the discussion. They're talented and skillful enough to recognize when a person is feeling fearful or trepidation and move in and relieve that and talk about it so that processing occurs. Once processing occurs, then healing can start to, to, um, to, to live there. You can plant a little seed of healing. And horses are remarkable beings. They're extremely intuitive. So that old adage, horses know if you're afraid, so pretend you're not. Well, the first half is true. The second half just doesn't work. If you're afraid, the horse knows you're afraid. So you, you might as well just stand there and say, I'm scared or, hey, it's okay, buddy. If you walk in with a lot of bravado and pretend you know what's going on and go into the horse's space, he or she will let you know. They won't hurt you but they will somehow recognize who you are and find a way to let you know that that's not okay. And as we get managed in our behavior by the herd, there are lots and lots of opportunities for us to talk about our own personal herds. Who are our relationships? We let our clients watch the herd interact and there they are in their families. Every single one of them can find their mother and their father and their boyfriend and their little brother and someone to, to, to bring up issues that are um, yet not dealt with and still, still um, wreaking havoc with their joy. So um, horses do that. They have a very, very large nervous system. So just being around them will calm you. And some people just want to stand near them. Some people just take chairs and go in the stalls and just breathe with them or listen to them eat. And it's, it's very relaxing. So um, there's a whole gamut of why horses work for certain people. Um, the theme is that they do. And not every horse wants to be a therapy horse, by the way. You can't just pull over by the side of the road and jump into a corral and go, oh, I think I'm going to make myself feel better. I mean, it may work. But, um, not, not every horse wants to engage. Not every horse wants to engage with people who are triggered or triggered easily or on medication or going through withdrawal or you know, having some of the, um, the, the human experiences that we do. So, but the ones that are all, all, are all there. And, and often they've had professional lives being um, competitive horses, hunters, jumpers, Western reigning horses, um, English uh, jumping, you know, um, equitation on the flat. Many of them were very, very successful. And so, they kind of don't have anything to prove. And now they're like we are. They're in the, the time of their life when they're settled and they're ready to give back. You know, just looking out, there hasn't really been a 
lot of, of data collection on equine therapy and, and different studies on how that helps people. But you and I went to see some folks at the United Veterans Committee of Colorado. And we just when you introduced yourself, people gravitated to you right away because, you know, the first words out of their mouth, oh, this works. Yeah. This works. Talk about some of the what people who are exposed to this and who take on equine therapy. Talk about some of the benefits and the results that you've been able to give people. Sure, thank you. Um, one of the things that really stands out in my mind is their ability to cope. Um, they have a toolbox now that they didn't have before. Um, and I'm not saying that it's the only toolbox they have, but it is one that um, they will always have and one that works every time. So because of that, they are more grounded, they are happier, and they are um, easier to get along with. The children represent less behavior problems in school. They get along with um, their parents, foster parents, um, step-siblings and siblings um, much better than they used to. And they're able to be more proactive in their own lives. They've found a way to um, not just blow up. They have found coping mechanisms so that when they, and they found the ability to recognize um, when they're having trouble. And the ability to recognize and having a toolbox are two things that can really change people's lives. And, um, and so that's, those are the kinds of things that we impart um, into, their, into their world, into their ability, their resources to be able to go to. You know, one of the things going back to our meeting uh, with the veterans here in Colorado at UBC uh, that they spoke to was the epidemic of veteran suicides. And uh, this has become a national issue. And uh, although there's been a lot of awareness probably over the last four or five years, it's certainly uh, they have not, the, the mental health profession has not really been able to make a significant dent in it. As a matter of fact, the first time I started hearing statistics, maybe seven or eight years ago, there were 18 or 20 veterans a day uh, committing suicide. That's up to about 23 a day now. So I know a lot of mental health uh, resources have been put into that, and a lot of people are, are doing work toward it, but we haven't really made a dent in it. With equine therapy being new, People might say, okay, I've tried some other things. Um, what would you talk to them about as far as, well, are you a candidate? Are you someone who would benefit from equine therapy? Who does equine therapy uh, help and, and uh, who, who's uh, predisposed to getting better results? How, how would you handle that type of conversation and what are what are some of the things you would say to those folks that are maybe may even be on the fence about trying it? I would say jump over that fence and come on over. Um, I don't know if you know this, Russ, but I have a very personal story with suicide. My husband committed suicide in 1991 or 19, 
1999. And so my personal experience with it is part of what motivates me to really be involved with the veterans. And the fact that I see it escalating and not decreasing is um, even more motivation to do it quickly and to do it in a, in a, in a large way um, and to try to get involved from a legislative perspective and try to get equine therapy approved and try to get these men and women into groups that are um, really where they belong and really where the rubber meets the road in terms of what they're dealing with and how we can help them to have less of it. Um, I'm not saying we're um, the panacea, but it is the best kind of therapy that I've ever been exposed to in terms of impact and the amount of joy that it allows people to feel in their lives for um, a longer period of time and for uh, uh, in a more deeper, meaningful, lasting way. So um, yes, suicide prevention is something that is very much part of our work and um, we take it very seriously. Um, and we have um, some people in our network that are specialists. Not only are they veterans, but they also are equine specialists. And so um, we feel like we're a really good resource for the veterans and we really want to make an impact and help to reduce that number and get it down, down to nothing or at least single digits in the next year or two if we can. It's an alarming number and, and it's, I've seen it escalate. So um, <clears throat> for people that are listening on the audio podcast, you should go to the page on the nonprofit exchange and look at the, um, the interview. You know, when we started out, um, I thought maybe she had a green screen image like me, but it kept moving. And then during the interview, this horse that was grazing is right, like right in the picture. <laughs> so this is uh, this is from the ranch. I'm wondering, um, you're you're really articulate. You're really focused. You're um, passionate about what you're doing. What do you do um, for self self care as a leader? Because uh, uh, it's not a straight line developing an organization, and you've been through some life trauma yourself. So how do you um, keep yourself on that, not only the cutting edge of what you're doing, but balanced? You set some boundaries, you mentioned that, but, but balanced and, and growing as a leader. How do you care for yourself? Um, I like to do workshops. I like to um, look, at, look for leaders that I admire and whom I would like to um, adopt some of their um, means of work. And so I go to different places and I do workshops and I educate myself. I further myself uh, mentally and spiritually. And um, I take time to expand in not only in terms of mental health and how we can help veterans and children, but also where I need to grow. Um, I do therapy for myself. I um, invest in relationships and have, uh, you know, get a lot of feedback from people and take their advice. I actually, you know, ask people what areas need to be improved and 
As far as a leadership, I like to go away with people. You know, I like to go on things that are kind of like retreats or weekends or, um, and just focus on, or even, even have a lunch or even spend some time with other thought leaders in, um, in a relaxing atmosphere to really just share ideas and not pursue the agenda so that we can expand ourselves and be more elastic instead of just doing our work every single day. That's expected of us. But how can we get bigger? How can we have new ideas and see things in different ways? And so I like to, to be involved with people in all different kinds of ways. That's a great answer. What do you think, Russ? I mean, that, that's a very balanced uh, approach to, to staying centered as a leader. Well, the podcaster, James Altucher, whose books I've been reading, he talks a lot about that. He talks about improving maybe 1% a day. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember where he said, get where he got that, but he said improving 1% a day uh, helps him to get better. And he's also, what one of the things he does is he writes down 10 ideas every day. It's, it's the ideas. Ideas move people. Uh, ideas move things forward. So he's, he writes down, he says, well, not all 10 of them may be good, but getting into the practice of doing that uh, helps you expand, helps you grow uh, and shift into, uh, into who you are. And so uh, we're big fans here at Center Vision of Lifelong Learning. We're mm -hmm. building toolkits out all the time. Uh, for people to come into the community and take advantage of. And uh, leaders are readers. And uh, that might be a green screen, but Hugh reads a lot of books. He's written some. And uh, uh, soon we're going to be talking about some of the books that are out there that we've read, uh, that some of our guests have written, and, uh, and talk about some of the lessons that we learned from them and some of the things that we can apply to put them to work for ourselves. Uh, so uh, along that line, uh, talk to us about some things that you've written and read, uh, Michelle, that have been very helpful to you on your journey in uh, making a difference in the lives of other people. I think that my sort of go-to resource is the book by Dr. Charles Whitfield on boundaries. And um, he's in his late night. He might not even be with us anymore. He was in his 90s a while ago when... Um, and it's sort of a go-to place for me because I think that no matter what walk of life you choose and no matter what kind of people you surround yourself with, it's important to be able to recognize what their boundaries are in order to maintain respectful interactions and relationships that really go deep and that really get intimate. And, I, and it also um, talks from a psychological point of view why we need to be able to understand what our own personal boundaries are because it gives us our room for our own mental health and our space to be able to um, stay emotionally fluid and healthy and available um, to be able to function and contribute as a human on the planet. 
um, instead of taking away. And um, I'm not saying that people who are needy are taking away. I'm saying that people who, who impose upon others and strip us of our dignity and our respective um, selves. So I, that's one of the most important books that I really, really like. And then another great book is um, by the daughter of either H or R. Block. Her name escapes me right now. But the name of the book is Prince Charming Isn't Coming. And it's a lovely book. <laughs> I see you're chuckling. It is. It, it, it's, um, it's true. By the way, Prince Charming Isn't Coming. <laughs> and so I love that book because it really reinforces that we are responsible for ourselves and that we can take responsibility no matter what our learnings previously or understandings have been. We can move on at whatever age to know who we are and to take care of our own needs. And so I love that message in that book. Um, another one would be Judith Durek, D-U-R-E-K, uh, Circle of Stones. Okay. So this is a book you could read in an hour, and it's a book about um, what your life would have been like if you had been offered all of the support from your tribe that you needed at every step of the way. If you were in the sweat lodge with all of your tribe members, and your elders were teaching you about how it is to be a man or a woman instead of the kind of life that you led. Um, what would that be like for you? And it's a wonderful springboard into what if, and it allows us to fantasize about what we could still be. So I really love that. And she presents it in a really easy to read, sort of um, lightly anecdotal um, uh, format. So I think those would be the three sort of go-to places. Um, another author that I must talk about is Andrew Sam Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N. And you must listen to his TED Talk. He writes children's books. And they are the best children's books I've ever read. And I majored in Kitty Lit. So I read a lot of children's books. And the reason they're so good and so meaningful is because of the values that they, um, that they impart and because of the way that they set up reading time and the way that they foster intimacy and create joy and love around reading. So he writes just the most, the greatest books, whether you have children or not, um, you must familiarize yourself with him. He's a delightful soul. That you have a um, a little sparkle in your eye when you talk about that and the passion. So, Michelle, <laughs> as we wrap up this really really good interview, lots of useful information, lots of um, we like for people to tell their own stories because it's encouragement for those who are starting out or those who are stuck. And you can make a pathway if you're determined to do it, but if you have a strategy and a team around you and a real clear way of talking about your vision and why people should support it in any, any manner. Um, <clears throat> we we um, wrap up our interviews with, uh, I'll have a sponsor message here, and then we'll give you a chance to share with people a closing thought or a challenge or a tip 
to other thought leaders that have great program, but they just need something to help them get to where they need to be with it. So you get to have the last word, and Russell closes us out and um, says sayonara at the end of this interview. So let me talk about Word Sprint. Word Sprint publishes our magazine, the Nonprofit Performance 360 magazine, and it's stories by leaders that are important stories about how to do things. And the current one out is about partnerships and collaborations. If you are a member of the Center Vision Online Community for Community Builders, then you get the magazine. If you're not, you can read it at nonprofitperformance.org, nonprofitperformance.org. Um, when you go there, it takes you to the Center Vision Community site, and you can click on, that's the magazine, and you can look at any of them, click on them, and you can read them digitally. But also at the top of the page, there's a join button and you can join our community. You get one of my programs that I sell for $100, even if you join just for free. There's paid levels, you get more with each membership. But we stay in touch with our tribe by mailing this in the mail. This is print. WordSprint specializes in donor relations, donor management, donor retention. Um, so if we tell people who have put money on our horse, so to speak. <laughs> How's this horse doing in this race for life? So, so it's it, Bill's formula is thirty percent the right person, thirty percent the right message, and thirty percent a regular rhythm. It's only ten percent about the appearance. So, Bill and his team at WordSprint.com can help you maintain your donor base, maybe even grow your donor base, and terms of higher giving plus they'll tell people when you let them know I'm here I'm successful I've taken great care with the money you gave to give value to others so wordsprint.com I encourage you to go and check it out and see if it would help you retain your clients your customers your donors or spread the word about what good work that you're doing we don't really communicate enough about it and we're glad that you're here on the nonprofit exchange, Michelle, to talk about the good work you're doing. So we close out this interview with you giving the last word to people. So what thought do you want to leave people with? So um, there are two things really that I would like to ask. Um, first, I would like to say thank you for all of the work that you're doing. And um, the two things I'd like to ask are these at today, I'd like to ask you to do two things today. Number one, ask for something that you have previously been afraid to ask for. And number two, to spontaneously help someone. And I want to thank you so much for listening today and let you know that we really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Hope to see you on August 11th in Lafayette. We're at thehealinghoof.org. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michelle. This has really been a great interview. It's a pleasure working with you. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing and uh, making that impact here on the front range with that wonderful program that you, that you have at Healing Hoof Foundation. A lot of people out there so I'd like to, again, thank all of our viewers who come and support us every day. You can find the Nonprofit Exchange on iTunes and Stitcher. 
and go to centervisionleadership.org where you can find this podcast along with a lot of other resources. Big blue button in the corner of that site as well that says join today. You can join at a number of levels, but we're building uh, more resources all the time for you to to look at and take advantage of and uh, and to grow that community where we're having discussions and where you can come and talk about things that are on your mind. We are here every week at 2 p.m. Eastern time on the nonprofit exchange where we have brilliant people like Michelle and all sorts of people come in and share their thoughts on doing good work to help other people. So once again, I'd like to thank you for that. Thank Bill Gilmer and his team uh, for their sponsorship, right message, right rhythm uh, to the right people. And uh, so join us again here next week on the nonprofit exchange until then Keep your head up and keep making a difference in the world today. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.